Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi guys, Zach Twomley here from When Diplomacy Fails. Just before we get going with this episode, I'd just like to let you know a few things. Number one, the episode that was just released on the State of the Podcast address must have been only a few days ago now, but I would really appreciate it if you guys would listen to that if you hadn't already, because it gives you some really important information about where I am in my life and where Diplomacy Fails will go from here. And it also is a little cheeky in that it asks you for your help in keeping that process going. If you're not aware, I have been offered a place in a PhD in History course in Cambridge, and because the course costs a load and because you've helped me get this far, I thought I might as well send out a somewhat cheeky appeal for donations. So, bearing all that in mind, if you have a few bucks in your pocket, as one of my favourite podcasters would say, I would really appreciate it if you would go to wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, that is wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, and click on the donate button in the right corner and continue from there. Any money at all is really appreciated, and if you want to know more about where your money is going, how much it costs, and how I got to where I am now, then you should listen to the state of the podcast address that was just released. Okay, that's one item out of the way. The other is to remind you that When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and that this month we are promoting American Biography, which is a wonderful podcast by Tom Daly. And I recommend you listen to it, because, hey, Tom Daly, that doesn't sell you what will. Okay, so, with that out of the way, I think we're ready to get down to business. The first of a somewhat special series, within a special series, is about to begin, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Let me know what you think through the usual channels, and thanks for listening. Also, thanks so much to everyone. For their donations so far because they are so so appreciated yeah that's it enjoy when diplomacy fails presents britain goes to war an in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. 
Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 17. This special is called Britain Goes to War, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that the Russo-Turkish War was the war within that title, with the amount of time I'm allocating to it. Spending so long in this chapter of British history wasn't an expected decision, it kind of happened naturally, but the more I look at the events and crises that surrounded the Russo-Turkish War, the more it makes sense to examine them more closely. I hope it doesn't scare you off, and that you're not wondering too much why I'm spending so much time here. I assure you our analysis will move a lot quicker once we move past this situation, but for now I feel this kind of examination is warranted. In light of this, the next few episodes will take a different focus. We're going to take the spotlight off Disraeli and the ongoing events of the Eastern Crisis for a few weeks, and shine it instead on a unique window into British political debate. By leaving Disraeli's premiership alone for about four weeks, we'll have time to examine the stances of figures in Britain other than the Prime Minister, the Foreign Secretary and a few other colleagues. Much like Mike Duncan didn't want the history of Rome to be a history of Roman emperors, I don't want Britain Goes to War to be a history of Disraeli and Derby either, even if that does sound like a fun show. So the next batch of episodes will see us take a look at one day of the British calendar in particular, the 17th of January 1878. We'll look at this date because over the course of that day the Queen's speech was delivered on the state of the nation. It was a speech laden with content and, some ministers claimed, hidden messages. But to us it was significant because ministers from both parties spent the day debating its contents in both houses, which, to cut a long story short, meant that all involved spoke, a lot, about how they felt about the entire situation that the Eastern Crisis and Disraeli's government had created. It makes for fascinating reading, and I couldn't help but feel as though we'd really benefit from hearing its contents. I'm not sure how it will come across to you guys. I hope you enjoy the transition for the window it'll give you into the period, but I also hope you enjoy hearing the way in which British politicians talked to one another in the parliamentary sphere, since these will be their actual words from that day in 1878. If you want to track these speeches and debates down for yourself, you should look at an older post of mine on the When Diplomacy Fails Facebook page from the 4th of February 2016, where I provided the direct link for the site, which is free to view and rich with the kind of content I'm about to provide here. I feel like this disclaimer at the start is necessary because we are changing our approach a little, and I appreciate that because it'll break up the narrative a tad, it won't be for everyone. But again, as a historian, I really feel as though such a distraction is worth it. Reading through it all in its entirety and dramatising these speeches myself, I couldn't help but feel and appreciate the history within the words that these men spoke. And to me, that's what it's all about. So let's begin. Thanks for your patience with this long monologue, and do let me know what you thought of it through the usual channels. Okay. So I will now take you to the year 1878, the month of January and the date of the 17th. Thanks. After a stormy series of weeks since the news of the fall of Plevin and a possible Russian march on Constantinople had been received, the British government, led by Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, lumbered wearily into its next round of debates over the situation. 
Without question, the highlight of January was to be the Queen's speech, which would explain to the nation as well as to its statesmen the circumstances which continued to unfold and cause so much consternation thousands of miles away. Its contents would not be news to the by now surely exhausted cabinet, who had debated and negotiated circles around the different strands of opinion which existed at the top of Britain's executive. But for the rest of the country, it would inform them of what was going on and where Her Majesty's government stood. After going through much adjustment following pressure on the Prime Minister in the weeks before, the actual speech Queen Victoria made was a seriously toned-down version of what Disraeli had originally penned, but it was still strong enough to establish British policy to its people at home and to observers abroad. As a speech, it was over 900 words long, but I'm going to cite the parts that best interest us for the sake of brevity. The speech wasn't actually read by the Queen in the House of Lords, where speeches like these were normally read out. Instead, it was read after its contents were forwarded to this individual by the Lord Chancellor, whose responsibilities as a British statesman were almost as numerous as that as the Prime Minister, even though they did date back further and had more cultural and spiritual ties to them. In our era, the Lord Chancellor is the Lord Cairns, so he was actually the individual that read out the speech. Just so you know. One notable paragraph of the speech had Lord Cairns stating, Hitherto, as far as the war has proceeded, neither of the belligerents has infringed the conditions on which my neutrality has founded, and I willingly believe that both parties are desirous to respect them, so far as it may be in their power. So long as these conditions are not infringed, my attitude will continue the same. But I cannot conceal from myself that, should hostilities be unfortunately prolonged, some unexpected occurrence may render it incumbent on me to accept measures of precaution. Such measures could not be effectually taken without adequate preparation, and I trust to the liberality of my Parliament to supply the means which may be required for that purpose. Though it wasn't the Queen actually reading this speech, Her words were felt throughout it, and the very content that you heard in this paragraph here would have been felt as a challenge to the moral fibre of her government as much as it was a statement attesting to that government's strength. The Queen certainly expected certain things, and to let her down would surely be shameful state of affairs. Britain had to be capable of defending herself and possessing a strong position in order to maintain her neutrality. If Russia did not heed the calls for peace, then on her head would it be, on her shoulders would the responsibility for everything that followed fall. The debate that followed the release and publication of the Queen's speech reminds us that other people existed in the halls of British political debate and decision-making other than its cabinet. The spectacle of debate was one which the British political system encouraged and cultivated, and it was as close to the idea of democracy that it got in the latter half of the 19th century. Robert Tennant, a Conservative MP for Leeds, declared upon the delivery of the speech that The time has apparently gone by, if we are to believe the public utterances of some of those who set themselves up as the leaders of the people and pioneers of public opinion, for this country to go to war for the sake of upholding the independence and territorial integrity of another country, 
or for maintaining the balance of European power, or for the vindication of violated treaties, or upon any of these historical pleas, which in times past were considered as justifying, and indeed demanding, an appeal to arms. No doubt, sir, this is a somewhat low and utilitarian view of the duties and obligations of a great country, but it is the view of the practical age in which we live, and however deeply some of us may deplore or resent it as derogatory to our position and repugnant to our feelings, yet I think it must be admitted that it is a policy that is at present, in accordance with the general feeling of the country, as the one most directly conducive to its material interests. I trust what I have just said will not be misunderstood. I should be sorry to say or believe that the tone of this country has fallen so low, that it has become indifferent to its honour or regardless of its interests, or that either could be assailed with impunity. We have taken no part in the miserable war, not because we do not sympathise with the Turks, as we should with any weak and brave people fighting for their country and struggling for their existence, but because neither our honour nor our interests have been attacked, and the Turks by their own gross misrule have brought upon themselves their present calamities, and by their own fatal obstinacy have disentitled themselves to our assistance. But if Russia, in the elation of her triumphant successes, false to our sullen promises and deaf to our appeals, should drive these wretched people to desperation, take possession of their country and set Europe at defiance, then there would be a reaction of feeling in this country which would be irresistible, and it would be impossible that we look idly on and see this monstrous outrage continue, without raising our hands to stop it. But, sir, most devoutly it is hoped that no such catastrophe will happen, and that this country will be saved from war, with all its attendant horrors and miseries. And it is most gratifying to hear that no exertions will be spared on the part of Her Majesty's government to bring about such a result. Mr. Tennant is not someone we have yet come across, but as a Conservative MP in a critical constituency, his opinion was an important one. We have established before that Disraeli's opinion was one which was unlike that of most of his colleagues, and despite the allusions to honour within Mr. Tennant's speech, this does still ring true. Disraeli was in the minority. In other words, he was one of the very few Conservative ministers at this stage agitating for a stiff response, or war for the sake of it. And yet somehow Disraeli had come to be Prime Minister. Tennant concluded his speech by insisting that Neither belligerent has yet infringed our conditions of neutrality, nor have any assurances been yet broken. Let us believe they will continue to be respected until we know that they will not, and let us magnanimously abstain from any act which may be taken as an expression of defiance or provocation and might lead to the very consequences which we should all deplore and are so anxious to avert. Should it, however, unfortunately be otherwise, and should it appear that Russia has designs and intentions at variance with the assurances of her representatives and the solemn protestations of her emperor, and should hostile intervention on our part be rendered necessary, I cannot for one moment doubt that we should give a loyal and united support to Her Majesty in the course which it would be her duty to take unless this country is willing, as I trust she never will be, to sacrifice her honour and her interests and forfeit her high and proud position among the nations of the world. After this speech in support of the policy of peace, it was time for the Liberal leader of the opposition in the House of Commons to speak. 
It was in many ways a rambling speech, and I'll do my best to communicate its main points, but it does serve to highlight the criticism that Disraeli's government would face should they step out of line and advocate a more aggressive foreign policy. It was not the case, as the man of many names, Lord Hartington, pointed out here, that war against Russia was a minority opinion among extremist conservative circles. Instead, Hartington insisted, war was a policy abhorrent to the vast majority of all segments of British political opinion. And these segments now wanted answers from their government, explaining why they had been recalled to assemble Parliament earlier than normal. As the Liberal Party's lead representative in the House of Commons, it was Hartington's job to take the Conservatives to task and challenge their decisions. In this first extract, Hartington summarised the events in late December 1877 which we looked at last time, and he also requested an explanation from the government. It was announced that Parliament would be summoned to meet earlier than usual, but what was unfortunate about this announcement was that it was not possible that Parliament should be summoned immediately, but only after the lapse of a month. During that month, I think it may be said that the mind of the country was greatly agitated, and time has been given for rumours to be spread abroad as to the intentions of the government, rumours which it was impossible in every case for the government to contradict. Every artifice was used by those who, for one reason or another, desire this country to depart from her neutrality and to excite the passions of the people, their anxiety, their fears, as the case may be, so as to induce the government to depart from their position of strict neutrality. Her Majesty's government cannot but be aware that the trade and industrial interests of the country have suffered from the anxiety perhaps inevitable from that delay. In some places where a revival of trade had commenced, it was immediately checked by the announcement of Parliament meeting so early that it might be in the contemplation of the government to propose to Parliament the adoption of a particular course. Trade, I have been informed, has been greatly paralysed by the agitation that has since prevailed, and it appears to me that some further explanation from Her Majesty's government as to the early meeting of Parliament, other than that contained in Her Majesty's speech, is required from them. It is announced very naturally that one of the reasons for this early meeting of Parliament is that Her Majesty might have the advice and assistance of Parliament on the present state of public affairs, but that is not the only reason, for we are informed that it is in order that we should be made acquainted with the efforts that have been adopted to terminate the war that is now devastating Eastern Europe and Armenia. The announcement of the early meeting of Parliament was made on the 18th of December, and the only attempt in the direction of negotiations, which we have had any knowledge of before that date, was the unsuccessful circular which was sent to the neutral powers generally, upon which no result took place, and the only effort of Her Majesty's government to restore peace, of which we are at present aware, was communicated to the public through the press when Her Majesty's government undertook, at the desire of the Sultan, to convey to Russia the desire of Turkey to make peace namely on the 29th of December, ten days after the announcement that Parliament would meet. We ought, therefore, to have some explanation from Her Majesty's government. Hartington was using the rights as a statesman which his descendants would use in 1914, the right to have more information as a member of Parliament. The very reason why such examinations as these are necessary, at least to me, is because they were echoed so heavily down the line. 
Hartington made an effective reference to the fact that the previous August, in 1877, things seemed to be hunky-dory, but now, all of a sudden, there was an early recalling of Parliament and talk of an increase in armaments. To what end, Hartington asked, were such developments underway? He said, What I gather from the language of the paragraph, and also partially and to a certain extent from the whole address, is that the intention is to ask for an immediate grant. Sir, it appears to me that there are grave objections to this course. What is the one reason that is alleged? What what are the facts as stated in Her Majesty's speech and how do they stand now as compared to the facts put before us in August last? So far we stand in a more favourable position now than we were in last August, when we had no knowledge whether the conditions of our neutrality would be observed and whether such observance was the desire of the belligerents themselves. Now we have obtained satisfactory evidence on both points. Is there any other circumstance which is less favourable now than it was then, when war was only just commencing? Why, at that time the war had only just begun, and it was impossible to tell what its course would be. Now, as we are informed, negotiations have been commenced which may lead to a peaceful settlement. Here again we stand in a very much more favourable position than we did last August. Then Parliament was about to separate for many months. Now Parliament has just met for the session. Her Majesty informs us that neither of the belligerents have infringed the terms of the neutrality. She believes further that both of the parties are desirous for peace. Thus far, we stand in no different light than we did before. The fair inference then, therefore, from every fact in this comparison would be that there is less reason to suppose that we are likely to be called upon now to interfere in defence of our interests than we were last autumn. Every fact points to the conclusion that preparation is less required now than last autumn, but Her Majesty's government appears to have come to a directly opposite conclusion. Whereas they were satisfied to prorogue Parliament last August without making any preparations, they are now not satisfied to summon Parliament without informing us at once of their intention to prepare for measures of precaution. There is but one reason that they give for this intention, but I ask the House whether that reason will bear investigation. It is alleged that hostilities may be prolonged, and that they may lead to some unexpected occurrence, which may render it incumbent to adopt measures of precaution. Well, I ask whether that is a reason at all, whether it is one fit to be addressed to a reasoning, deliberate assembly, and would inquire of the government, what are the circumstances on which they found their anticipation of unexpected occurrences, which they ought not to have found out before the end of the last session in August? Her Majesty's government seemed by their present course to condemn themselves for want of foresight last year. Was it not more likely that something unexpected would take place, when Parliament was about to separate, than now? Hartington followed this with an attack on British foreign policy, because in the past, even as recently as May 1877, when British interests were established, it was declared that Britain should defend these interests with the other. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. European powers. Now it seemed Britain had become so isolated that she was now forced to defend these interests alone. This, Hartington lamented, represented nothing less than a diplomatic failure on the government's part. He said, I do not suppose the House has forgotten the definition of British interests which were made last May, when the Chancellor of the Exchequer divided them into those which we should have to maintain solely, and those with reference to which we might act in concert with other nations. Now, I think it would be impossible for anyone to say that those interests, which are wholly and purely British, and the protection of which devolves upon Britain only, have been or can be within any human probability affected. If any interests can be interfered with, it is those which, as was pointed out by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, it is the duty of England, in concert with the rest of Europe, to protect. He said at that time, quote, There are many others which are of interest to Europe generally, and I think we may feel confident that those nations which have close interests than ourselves in these matters will take care at the time they think best and most convenient to protect their interests. I see no reason, as he further said, quote, why we should put ourselves forward alone to fight for these interests, end quote. Now I would ask whether anything has occurred to render the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the government less confident than they were that they may rely upon the assistance of the other powers for the protection of those interests in which they are equally interested with this country. Now I would ask whether anything has occurred to render the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the government less confident than they were that they may rely upon the assistance of the other powers for the protection of those interests in which they are interested equally with this country. Have they so mismanaged matters that when the papers are presented we are to find that we are isolated so completely that we shall have to stand alone now in the defence of those interests of the world for the defence of which the Chancellor of the Exchequer said last May we count upon the assistance of the whole of Europe to protect... Splendid isolation, according to the Liberal leader, was anything but splendid, since it meant that Britain would have to work that much harder to make its voice in foreign policy count. Hardington followed this with his most striking and perceptive remark of all. When examining the paragraph of the Queen's speech which noted the importance of remaining neutral should the present situation continue, Hardington couldn't help but notice the undertone of insincerity behind such a claim. Perhaps he was detecting the remnants of Disraeli's policy, left between the lines of what the Queen had been saying. Hartington noted, I hope I may be wrong, but when I read the paragraph in the Queen's speech to which I am especially referring, 
I could not help thinking that it was the work of men who were not altogether satisfied with the position which they had taken up. I cannot but fear that there are some who had a hand in the preparation of this paragraph, who do not distinctly understand the compact which was made between the government and the nation, and in what the conditions of our neutrality really consisted. The conditions were clearly understood by the country, and it seems to me that someone has had a hand in the preparation of this paragraph who wished that these conditions had been somewhat different to what they were. Following this remark on the desire to perhaps go further than the contents of the Queen's speech suggested, Hartington landed on the issue of national humiliation, a common theme which Disraeli had held so close during the previous months. In the Prime Minister's mind, as we have seen, the notion that peace should come about, or a settlement be negotiated, or even that a significant development should result, without English involvement, was nothing less than a humiliation and a mark against the prestige of England, because British prestige and influence should be at such a level that no event could occur without her involvement. Such logic was hotly debated by Darby, among others, but it also received criticism from the Liberal benches, as Hartington's final critique shows. He said, To a certain extent, statesmen take particular views upon this matter, and there are probably some who look on the state of things as a humiliation to this country. And now I have no desire to see my country humiliated. I am not prepared to admit that this state of things, although it may be, as I have said, mortifying to a certain extent to the statesmen who have taken a particular view of the Eastern question, we might have had a share in these negotiations that are now going on. We might have had a share in them in various ways. We might have had a share in them as allies of Turkey. We might have had a share in them as allies of Russia. Or we might have had a share in them as benevolent and friendly neutrals, as the Germans have been. But we deliberately decided, our government has deliberately decided, that it would stand in none of these positions. An overwhelming public opinion refused to be the allies of Turkey. The government, in accordance with a very large public opinion, also declined to be the ally of Russia, and the government felt compelled at the outbreak of the war to express to Russia their sense of the misconduct of which she had been found guilty. It was not likely, therefore, that they should stand in the position of a friendly neutral to Russia, which had been assumed by Germany and Austria. I say, then, that the position we have assumed is one which we have assumed by our own choice, which we have deliberately assumed in a great measure, in deference to our own conscientious convictions. I therefore am not able to say that there is any humiliation to this country, necessarily, involved in our temporary exclusion from the settlement of this quarrel, in which we deliberately resolved to take no part. The idea that humiliation was something in the mind of a minority of Conservative ministers only was certainly inferred by Hartington's speech here and it is possible that he was aware of Disraeli's preference for the policy of prestige, which left some of his own Conservative colleagues so aghast. This, Hartington reasoned, was not justification for war. The people had spoken and they had chosen peace. Peace was what they wanted and peace should be the goal of the government. There was nothing dishonourable or humiliating about taking no part in a war which the British public had absolved itself of. This may have urged Disraeli, had he actually heard it, but the Prime Minister would certainly have reasoned that Hartington did not have an ear to the public mind as he did, and that, according to the section of the public which he listened to, Disraeli had discerned that a sizable portion were most definitely in favour of some kind of action, 
which would offset any potential for humiliation by inaction and recoup any lost prestige. In response to such criticisms, in stepped Sir Stafford Northcote, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and someone who knew all too personally about the divisions in Cabinet which had regularly threatened to rip it apart. Northcote also justified his government's foreign policy to the opposition, even though he knew well that at the time, Cabinet ministers had stood on opposing pillars when it came to advocating it. The Chancellor of the Exchequer had to defend the principles upon which the policy had stood, even while he would have known deep down that divisions remained deeply entrenched in its core that still threatened to pull his cabinet and the government apart. But he did his level best, stating, Our foreign policy was a policy of strict neutrality in the struggle going on between Russia and Turkey, but it was a policy guarded by declarations of the government that there were certain interests of our own which it was necessary for us to respect, and which we were especially bound and determined to defend, and that the declaration of our neutrality must be considered as subject to the duty which we have recognised of protecting those interests. That policy has been discussed at Parliament, and it had been accepted, I may go further and say affirmed, by a very large majority and not only by a large majority of this House, but, I believe, by the very general consent of a large majority of the people of this country. From that position, which we laid down for ourselves, and which was so affirmed and accepted, from that moment to the present we have never shrunk or varied. I admit it has been a position which was a difficult one to maintain, because of the great excitement which would naturally prevail upon one side and upon the other, and because that excitement which would not unnaturally lead persons to take strong views in favour of Russia or Turkey, would naturally lead some on the part of this country to further the views that Russia had undertaken to promote, or others go forward in defence of our ancient ally, the Turks. That excitement, in the circumstances, naturally led to all sorts of constructions being put on every act and word of the government, which even though they had no significance whatever in the slightest degree, inconsistent with the policy that they had laid down, were, as the noble lord has very fairly reminded the house, twisted and distorted and misrepresented, so as to give them a totally different colour from that which they ought to bear. So far I go with the noble lord, but I must beg leave to differ from one observation which he made when he said that the misrepresentations did not originate with the political opponents, but were generally to be found emanating from the political friends and supporters of the government. Well, sir, I do not wish to say anything on behalf of certain indiscreet friends and supporters. They may from time to time have put an improper construction upon our acts and words. But I must take leave to say that the construction which has been put upon not only individual acts, but upon the whole course of our policy from first to last by the associates and colleagues of the noble lord and by his friends, has done tenfold more mischief than any indiscreet remarks or comments of any political friends and supporters of mine. It has not been a question as to whether the sailing of a particular vessel to a particular place at a particular time did not or did mean this or that or the other. What we complain of is this, that from beginning to end we have had it continually urged on this country by the adherents of the party opposite and by their friends throughout the country that whatever this government might say, however plausible their language might be, however sound their doctrine they laid down, the country was not to believe them, 
The tone they assumed was a convenient cloak, but it was a cloak and nothing more, to conceal the secret and fixed intention of the government to carry the country into a war for Turkey. Northcote believed that liberal gossip and rumour were leading the public to distrust their conservative ministers, but in particular he resented the criticisms that Hardington had levelled at the government's way of conducting its foreign policy. Northcote insisted in the strongest terms that Sir, the position of England is by no means one of humiliation. The position of England is by no means one of isolation. It is a very favourable phrase that is current among honourable gentlemen opposite that England, by the conduct of Her Majesty's government, has been placed in a position of isolation. I see no position of isolation at all. I am quite unable to recognise anything in our position that differs at all from that of other neutral powers in respect of isolation. We have not joined either of the belligerents. Neither has Austria, neither has France, neither has Italy. We do not talk or hear about the isolation of those countries. But, sir, we have taken upon ourselves to act and to speak for ourselves when we have thought it wise, right, and necessary to act. And as long as Her Majesty's present advisers are entrusted with the conduct of affairs, they mean to take that course continually. If we find it necessary for us to speak, we shall speak. We are not anxious to place ourselves in a different position from other nations. We are not anxious to separate ourselves from the European concert. And we have proved that we have not. Northcote wasn't finished though, and threw back Hartington's remarks about British isolation with a lesson in history. When presented as Northcote did, it was hard to argue with the Chancellor of the Exchequer's version of events, even if they did differ slightly from the history we've examined in the past. Northcote continued, Clearly, the honourable gentleman opposite must have got that Berlin memorandum so largely on the brain that they can see nothing of what has happened since. Granting, however, for a moment that we isolated ourselves on that occasion, which is now two years ago, do they forget our communications with other powers in reference to the Serbian war? And do they forget that we not only took the initiative, but were the power which most of all conducted to the stopping of that war in concert with others? But beyond that, what do you say to the conference? I think the actual proposal of the conference came from us. At all events, we were foremost in promoting it, and took an active part in the deliberations of that conference. It has been said that there are some men who are never so much alone as when they are in a crowd, and perhaps the honourable gentleman to I allude thinks that a nation or a government is never so much isolated as when engaged in a conference with other nations or governments. But anyone who knows the proceedings of the conference and the part England took in it will see that England was in no position of isolation. We separated ourselves in no sense from the other powers, and they showed no desire to separate themselves from us. I will say nothing as to the London Protocol, but simply close this branch of my remarks with the observation that since Russia went to war, we have occupied a position precisely similar to that of all the other powers which took no part in the war. The language which has been used by the other powers has been very similar to that used by ourselves. I observe that the Austrian government, for instance, have explicitly declared their neutrality to be conditional, but they reserved to themselves, quote, full liberty of action for the protection of Austrian interests, end quote. This is exactly the position of England, and when we know that the other powers hold similar views, we cannot accept the isolation view held in regard to England. 
Northcote felt it necessary to explain to Hartington and the opposition benches why the government had felt it necessary to take precautions and, at times, get involved in ideas of mediation. The Chancellor declared that, It must be borne in mind that any agreement, or any terms of peace that may be made, can only be made with the consent of the other European powers. If the peace is one which in any way affects or varies with the arrangements made between those powers. Therefore, our position is one of considerable delicacy and anxiety. We trust and we are ready to believe that the proposals that will be made by the Russians will be in accordance with the declarations which they have made before the beginning of the war. But it is impossible to say what may be the effect which these hostilities and this long struggle may have had upon the position and views of the Russians. It is therefore necessary that we should maintain an attitude of watchfulness and reserve until we see and know what it is they are prepared to demand. The answer cannot be very much longer unknown to us, and when we know it, we shall see more clearly where we are. Northcote finished by making a warning to the opposition about the importance in supporting the government's course for the sake of Britain's security at this pressing time. The Chancellor of the Exchequer wanted an end to the intrigue which seemed to cast doubt over the government's sincerity in its negotiations and its true intentions. Northcote knew only too well that the Cabinet's moves were hard to deduce thanks to its varied opinions and emotions, but he had to believe in the integrity of its fighting figures to see its policy through, and it was this that he sought to communicate, I would judge quite effectively, to those in the House of Commons. He said, I may say that at the present time we have made no immediate proposals, but we think it is right to warn and to remind the House that it may very well become our duty to put ourselves into a position to take the measures of precaution that may become necessary. I speak frankly. It is necessary that we should speak frankly. We have no wish to excite false hopes on the one side, nor to give offence on the other. We maintain the views which we have always taken on this matter. We desire to see a fair, a proper and reasonable settlement of the government of that great country, the Christian provinces of Turkey. We have done what we could by reason, persuasion and argument to bring about an amelioration of that government. We have gone further than that and have told the port that if it refused to adopt our advice and that of the other European powers, we could not take up arms to defend and save it from the consequences of its own folly. It is perfectly true that we had entered into treaty arrangements, among which was one binding upon us and upon the other powers, upon certain circumstances, to defend Turkey from attack. But the position in which that country has placed itself has been this, that she has refused and resisted all the recommendations that were made by those powers, and therefore those powers, finding themselves unable to induce it to adopt them, are of course in a very different position from that which they had previously occupied. The position of the Eastern Question is, and has long been, not in our time only, but for generations past, one which has interested not one or two countries only, but the greater part of Europe. That question is as difficult now as it has been at any other previous time. It will require the greatest firmness, caution, and the greatest prudence in dealing with it and endeavouring to settle it. We are as well aware as you are of the horrors of war. We are as anxious as you can possibly be to save this country, or to save any other portions of Europe, from the horrors of war. 
We are anxious to do whatever we reasonably and possibly can to put an end to the fearful war that has been going on and which certainly led to so many horrible and fearful sufferings. But we must take care lest, in our anxiety to avoid such evils, we run into greater ones. We must beware lest we allow the question to get into such a position as to lead to the result which the noble lord referred to, that of the possibility of a much wider and greater scope being given to the war. We believe that now is the time when, by proper action and influence, we may hope to localise the war and bring it to a conclusion. We are earnestly desirous to accomplish that end. We have no secret intentions to play the country false, or our allies false, or Turkey false. We have no desire to adopt any other policy than that which we have declared. It is a policy which, as I have said, has already been approved, and which I believe the country is prepared to approve still. It is one which I admit, and which I call upon you to admit, is one of difficulty and delicacy to follow, but it is not one which we shall be able to follow with success unless we have the avowed support and confidence of Parliament and the country. If we are to be continually weakened in every step we take and in every declaration we make by insinuations, and indeed by something more than insinuations, that we are playing false and do not mean what we say, no one can answer for the consequences. I repeat that we cannot undertake to carry on affairs of this kind unless we are properly and honestly supported. I venture to say that it is a question involving the interests of this country and of Europe. I say that the interests of Europe are not disassociated from those of this country in this matter, and are not separate from and are certainly not opposed to them. We are not desirous of prosecuting a selfish policy, nor of obtaining advantages for ourselves at the expense of others. We desire to promote that which has been the great object and boast of England. We desire to promote the cause of freedom, of liberty and peace upon the largest and highest scale. When you talk about the possible effacement of England, I say that not only can England herself not afford to be effaced, but that Europe cannot afford that she should be effaced, because England represents in the European system that which is the most important and noblest element in the system. And I venture to say that if England be true to herself, it will not only be to the advantage and blessing of her own country, but to the whole of Europe and the world. Northcote would surely have felt satisfied in his defence of government policy, a policy which had been through the ringer over the previous years thanks to the deteriorating relationship between Derby and Disraeli, and the gradual splitting of the cabinet into a pro-peace and pro-war camp, with numerous classifications within to match. Yet even Northcote would have let out a moan when he saw that the next MP to stand up and speak was Disraeli's renowned nemesis, William Gladstone. If anyone could deliver a deadly blow to the cabinet's face of unity or to the government's mask of control, then it was the former Liberal Prime Minister. Next time, we'll see just what he had in store for the Conservatives. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 